If you would, just go ahead and get your Bible out and we'll get started. Matthew chapter 27. Still. <laughs> it's been a little bit of a, a longer study here, but we call this section the Holy of Holies of the, uh, of the Bible. Now, one of the reasons we call it the Holy of Holies is maybe a more obvious reason, um, because we're talking about the cross. But who can tell me, quiz time, see if anybody was listening, what's another reason we would call this section the Holy of Holies particularly? Anybody wanna take a stab at that one? Yes, the, the veil of the temple being ripped. Uh, it, it, this is the moment in the Bible where you and I have access to the Holy of Holies through Christ. When as, as you know, it says, you know, as we studied this, this uh, last weekend, that uh, the Christ flesh is a picture of that veil. And when his body was broken, even as he, you know, tore the bread, uh, the, you know, we learned uh, that Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we enter by a new and living way by the whole, into the holiest by, uh, that is to say, his flesh, the veil that was ripped in the temple. So we spent time on that on Sunday and we, um, we see him still, as, as we've been studying this, the, the scene of the cross is, uh, is worth slowing down and kind of taking a look at it. So that's why we're moseying through Matthew here. Just the, you could spend a lifetime in these chapters and never do it justice. So um, one of the things you gotta remember about Wednesday night Bible study, by the way, we're doing a very scratch the surface uh, study in the Bible. The Bible is as deep as you wanna go. And anybody who's willing to go deep will be rewarded. Um, and sometimes I kind of feel like Wednesday nights are more just to equip you and us to go deeper. Uh, if you wanna take it and run with it. If you ever think, boy, I wish Brett would say something more about that. Uh, good news, there's a thing called Google. And it's amazing. You have to kind of sort through some of the hogwash out there. And uh, I should probably be careful on that. Because, but, you know, Blue Letter Bible is, how many guys use Blue Letter Bible? Raise your hand. Okay, good. If you've never heard of it, you're missing out. Uh, um, I, I use uh, Blue Letter, but I actually use Logos Bible software, which is basically a really expensive version of that. Um, but Blue Letter Bible gets it done. It really does. Logos is a little, little taller learning curve. Um, it was great. Uh, years ago, I, um, I, I was here at Athey Creek on a Wednesday night and a guy walked up to me and said, hi, I'm, you know, and uh, this guy introduced me and, and I didn't know who it was. And he said, I'm the guy who started Logos Bible Software. And I was like, wow, that's cool that you're here. And he said, do you know how many books you, you've bought? How much money you've spent on books? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked, I looked to make sure Debbie wasn't around. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, this was years ago, back at the school. Uh, and I've been using Logos Bible software, you know, just as a study tool for years. But uh, I spent over $10,000 and that was like 10 years ago or whatever, so. Um, but uh, but uh, I've got this huge library, but I've, I can't confess that I've studied them all, all those books. I wish I could say that, but, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's such a handy tool for searching and stuff. So anyway, one of these days I, I'm gonna do a, a, a thing like on the side to uh, maybe show people something about Logos Bible software, Greek, Hebrew, uh, there's so much good uh, study stuff. We have no excuses anymore to be biblically illiterate. Uh, I think Paul the Apostle would be shocked at how much information we all have, but how stupid we really are. 
myself included. But anyway, that, that's another story. So just keep in mind, we're just scratching the surface here uh, at Eighth Year on Wednesday night. And I love that the Bible is something we can study the rest of our lives and never really fully plumb the depths of the scriptures, which is pretty cool. But, um, uh, you know, all this to say, Jesus, uh, we, we've seen him, he's nailed to the cross. Um, we left off with them mocking. Uh, in fact, let's, let's back up a little bit and go back to verse 39. Uh, chapter 27, 39, it says, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Um, what does it mean to wag your head? Um, uh, you know, I think it's that thing where um, people think they're so smart and they kind of start talking to you like this, like, what do you really know? Like, it's, it's sort of the most smart aleck sort of demeanor you could ever have. Um, and uh, it's kind of interesting when people do that, but especially when again, they're doing it against you. And, and so these, it's, it's kind of the epitome of mockery. They're mocking him by wagging their heads, it says here, is kind of the idea there. Um, verse 40, and saying, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41, likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, Have, uh, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross and we will believe him. Um, and then they go on there. Uh, and he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So this is just the mockery that was heard uh, of those standing around the cross. Uh, what a interesting bunch. These were supposed to be the religious leaders. One of the things we sort of, uh, we were racing through at the end of last Wednesday night. Um, one of the things we noticed is how these guys really made some concessions here that are kind of shocking. I wonder if later, after they thought about it for 10 seconds, if they thought, man, I don't know if we should have given him all that. Uh, they, they said, he saved others, which is an admission that he had a ministry of saving people. They admitted that, and yet they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Of course, they're wrong. He saved others, and good for you and me, he didn't save himself. Had he saved himself, those people and us, all of us, would be doomed to hell. But Christ was willingly going to the cross, uh, was going to die for the sins of the world. He did save others and he saved everybody in the whole world, anyone who would accept him uh, because he stayed on the cross. He didn't do what they were asking him to, to come down off the cross. So admission number one, he saved others. Uh, admission number two in verse 43, it says here, um, he trusted in God, they said, verse uh, 43, let him deliver him now. Um, uh, they're admitting that he trusted in God. That, that's interesting that these uh, enemies of Jesus were giving him, yeah, he saved others and he trusted in God. When your enemies are saying that, that's pretty radical. Uh, it just shows the guilt of these people. Um, by the way, um, that's something that people will do to you. Um, they'll, they'll hear you talk about Jesus and salvation eternal life. As a Christian, you'll talk about that. But the world still does the same tactic where they say, you know, you believe in salvation. Why doesn't God help you? Why are you going through difficult times? Uh, you know, and it's interesting how the world sort of tries to make a mockery of when Christians suffer. But that's something we need to remind people. When you become a Christian, it's not so that you won't suffer. The, the Lord never promises that you will not go through difficult times. In fact, you might even prove the op opposite where those who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. You're gonna go through suffering. That's part of the deal. Um, and before we get upset with God, we have to remember 
how much suffering Jesus went through for us, something we'll never even come close to measuring up to the suffering that Jesus had on the cross. Um, Christ went through much more suffering than anyone else in the history of the world um, for not just the physical reasons, but the spiritual reasons, which we'll talk about more tonight. Um, you know, and, and, um, and remember, you know, the people that talk about, well, if you're a Christian, why aren't things rosy? Remember, that was the whole problem with the book of Job. Why is Job going through suffering if he's such a you know, nice guy? And they debated and they were all wrong, but we know that God was doing a work in Job and there was this cosmic discussion going on between God and Satan and it was gonna last for all of history, for all the world to see. And Job suffered brutally. But the Lord did end up rewarding him even in this life, lifetime, if you remember that. Um, and then of course, do you think Job's in heaven to this day going, man, I wished I would have cursed God and die like my wife told me to do. Like, do you think that's what he, he should have done? No, no, in heaven, I'm sure Job's like, phew, glad I, I at least didn't make a total fool of myself, you know? Um, but I love that Job, um, he's a great example of that. Um, and and we, we all look at, you know, things like cancer and seemingly a premature death of someone before they're, you know, old enough or whatever. We, we look at those things and we tend to blame God uh, for suffering. If God is love, then why does he allow suffering and stuff like that? And I'm not sure that the answers are all super easy necessarily, but why does God allow suffering? Well, suffering was brought into this world when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Everything became in, in this fallen state of this world. Disease, death, we did that. And Satan helped bring that in. And really the world is gonna have that until God reclaims this earth. Um, and that's gonna happen in his second coming. So people say, well, if God is love, why doesn't he intervene? First answer, he is going to intervene. Well, why doesn't he do it now? Um, ask God. Uh, the Bible tells us that he is long suffering because he wants as many people to come to repentance, repentance in the midst of their sin and suffering. He wants them to repent and turn to him uh, for their salvation. And he's waiting because he's patient and long suffering. You know, First Peter 3 or 2 Peter 3 talks about that. Um, so before we get upset with God, we have to remember what God, not only did he uh, provide he heaven, eternal life for us, but he suffered on the cross for us so that we could have uh, salvation. So when people say, well, oh, he died prematurely, well, there's no such thing as a premature death. You know, how do we know that? Uh, I hope we're careful as Christians. I mean, I know I'm into technicalities and some of you are like, Brett, I hope you don't say that at a funeral. There's no such thing as a premature death. When people, oh, he went too soon. No, he didn't. Uh, that's not very sensitive, Brett. Yeah, but I'm kind of a logical guy who likes the Bible. And the Bible tells us, you know, in Hebrews 9, 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Um, the Bible says that we all have an appointment with death and God knows when that appointment is. Um, by the way, the whole thing of, um, you know, when we die and stuff, I think that's something that our world has gotten a little weird about. It was only magnified and revealed during the coronavirus scare where everybody was living in total fear, you know, for their lives. And, and you can see a difference. There were some people like, if I die, I die. Other people, oh, that's the worst thing that could ever happen is if I died. Well, not really. <clears throat> there's, more, there's more things that can happen to you other than just death. <clears throat> and, um, and as it turns out, when you're a Christian who trusts the Lord, that he knows the timing. I'm not arguing for, you know, um, trying to prematurely put yourself at risk to die just stupidly. I'm not really arguing for that, but I do think people try to live far too safe 
uh, when, when they really could just trust the Lord and say, you know what, the Lord knows what he's doing. And uh, so you might say, well, Brett, I, I'm gonna test, if, if God has an appointment for me to die, I'm just gonna jump out of an airplane without a parachute. And then we'll know when your appointment was. It's that simple. God made that appointment already. So, you know, uh, don't be stupid about it. But um, anyway, all that to say, um, you know, one of the things that I hope we can do is no no matter how bad or sick or things that happen, we understand that God knows those deaths. You know, this week has been a tough week. Um, The transgender um, woman goes in there and shoots up a school this week. Um, you know, and, and um, so sad to see six people in that little church school, uh, you know, killed. And people say, why? Why would God allow this? Well, again, this is just, God knows uh, what's happening, but this has to do with humanity and the, the sinfulness of man. This is one of those examples, by the way, where we, we should know, we should see, oh, this is because of the sinful fallen state of humanity, I, I don't, I, I find it interesting. You know, it's, it's something I, I was trying to talk about on Sunday um, and, and how really the ones who truly love transgender people are the, the Christians that I know. We actually care enough to say, hey, this direction you're going um, leads to suicidal tendencies more than any other lifestyle in this world. 40% on average suicide rate. I mean, I was trying to make that point only to have that reinforced this, this week, sad to say. And then people say, well, what about the children? Doesn't God care about the children? Well, absolutely does. And you know, you know who I feel heart, heartbroken for mostly, I think is the parents, the, ki- the children, you know, um, they went straight to heaven. I mean, don't forget that. Um, uh, those, just like Job, I'm sure those children will go, huh, yeah, we didn't have to go through our 18, 19, 20 year old or 50 year old. We didn't have to feel like, like for those children, the Lord is faithful and, and he's able to take care of them. But uh, it, as heartbreaking as it is, but you do have to be praying for the families and the people that are left. And it's just such a heartbreaking situation. But all of that is really part of the fall of humanity. And, and that's why Jesus suffered on the cross so that um, we could all be saved, man, woman, child. We can be saved if anyone will accept. Um, people talk about the age of accountability. I've done whole uh, sections of study on that from the book of Isaiah and other places. But um, I believe uh, the age of accountability is probably a variable. We don't know the exact age but I do think it's uh, probably older than we think, if I could guess. I've known some people that I think they were in their 20s, and I'm not sure they'd reached the age of accountability. Uh, it has to do with maybe your ability to know stuff. I don't know. Uh, to who much is given, much is required. But I also have met two and a half year olds that I think reached the age of accountability. Uh, they're some of the smartest little whippersnappers out there. Um, but I know people accepted Christ with a total understanding at two or three years old. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing. But all that to say, um, you know, when we go through difficult times, I like to try to remember Romans chapter five, verses three through five. Not only so, we glory in tribulations, Paul said, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So they said, okay, he trusted in God. Let's see how it works out for him. And it's gonna work out, by the way, perfectly, beautifully. Christ is gonna die on the cross, just like he said, when you destroy this body, then he said, three days later, I will raise it up. Um, and, And Jesus knew what was happening. And by the way, this is where Jesus trusted the Father, if you would, 
Um, we too need to understand that when we go through suffering, even as Christ was going through suffering, trusted the Father, um, we too can learn from that. I hope you're trusting the Lord, that he knows what he's doing. Too many people, I think, we live with sort of wanting to have security that's outside of God. Like, you know, we try to set it up so we're... Uh, I remember reading a, a story of, a, of an ancient king who uh, had an architect and he wanted to build a certain fancy archway over an entrance into the, the palace area. And uh, so this architect, and this was early when they were just figuring out archways and stuff like that. Well, this architect was particularly smart and he figured out a way to do an archway, but it had an arch and then it had a flat section and then the other side of the arch. And it was, they'd never seen anything like that that was gonna be able to stand up. And, but the, the architect did the math and knew how to make such a structure. Well, when the king saw it, he said, I will never walk under that, that looks unsafe. And the architects, no, look at the math. When you do it, think these angles just like this, you have these supports and these stones. And the, the king said, I will never. And he, he said, I want you to build a pillar in the middle to make sure that it holds up okay. And the, the architect says, you don't need to do that. He said, if you don't, your head will be chopped off immediately. So the guy, architect went off and made a big pillar and stuck it in the middle of the archway to make the king feel comfortable enough to walk under it. Well, about 25 years later, the architect died and um, the king was sent a letter from the wife of the architect. She was told to mail this to the king on the day of his death. And the king opened up this letter and it said, look at the top of my pillar. And the king and everybody were curious what, what was going on there. And the, the architect built the pillar, a big fat pillar, strong and mighty, but he left a half inch gap <laughs> between the archway and the top of the pillar. I love that story. Um, there's, there's some of us that we wanna put our trust in the Lord, but we also wanna put our trust in the goofy pillars of this world. And you don't need that. We, we need to only put our trust in the Lord. And, and Jesus is um, uh, the one that, you know, is the perfect embodiment of, of, you know, the one who made himself of no reputation, took on himself the form of the man, a servant, and was obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. But, um, you know, he knew that, uh, what he was doing and he knew that God the father was gonna be there and that he would be uh, in that sense raised from the dead. So no need for safety nets if you're a Christ follower, that's kind of important. Well, back to Matthew 27, verse 44, it says the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the uh, same in his teeth. Now, if you have a King James Bible, this is one of the probably most uh, difficult verses in your whole translation. I'm sorry about this translation. You're saying, what does this mean? Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows why the scholars really interpreted this the way they did in the King James. Um, you know, what does it have to do with the teeth? Casting his, did they make a mold of his teeth or are they putting a crown on their molar? And like, uh, what's going on there? Well, uh, actually the idea is probably that of something we see in the Bible often where there were people gnashing their teeth at people. Remember when Stephen preached his sermon there in the book of Acts and they gnashed their teeth at him? It's kind of like, oh, you hate your guts, that kind of a thing. They, they, they probably are, are trying to see that here in the text, but I like the uh, ESV translation puts this probably in the best, as far as translation, when you go from the Greek to, to the English, um, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And that's the main crux of what was said in the Greek. In the same way that the, the priests and all those other guys were mocking Jesus, the robbers were mocking him in the same way. 
Um, by the way, interesting side note, Matthew doesn't give the account of the thief that would later uh, change his heart and get saved and end up in paradise. Matthew doesn't get into that part of the story. Uh, we'll get that in the other gospels, uh, interestingly enough. But um, now verse 45, it says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Uh, this is interesting. So uh, if you follow the timing of the cross, most, uh, you know, the sixth hour, ninth hour, it's not the language we would use, but you'd say the crucifixion started at 9 a.m. Um, then he, he gave up the ghost or death came at, at noon. And then the darkness would last from noon uh, to three o'clock. That's what most scholars, when they piece it all together, uh, agree that that's probably what was going on. Uh, and it says here uh, in verse 45, there was darkness um, all over the land unto the ninth, ninth hour. Would you mark the word land there? It's kind of an interesting word um, because when we read that in English, it was all over the land. It means Judea, maybe. There was darkness all over Judea um, or that region or something like that. Maybe it was a cloudy day. But as it turns out, um, the word land there in, the, in the, the Greek text is the word gay. Huh, Brett? Uh, what are we talking about here? Well, the word gay is not uh, homosexual. Uh, that's what they, that's, they robbed us from that word. And neither are we talking about the gay of the Flintstones who had a gay old time. Um, but the word gay in the, in the Greek text means earth as a whole. That's kind of an important thing. That's where we get our word G, Ology. You'd say, well, Brett, you should pronounce it G then. Well, actually the word G-E in the, in the Greek is, is gay. And then they attach that prefix to ology, the study of the earth, uh, geology as a whole. Um, uh, this is an interesting thing because the reason I point out that word is because it's very likely it wasn't just the region of Judea that became dark uh, for those three hours, but it was probably shockingly the whole earth. Uh, well, Brett, how can you know that? Well, the word gay helps us understand that. But also there's some interesting extra biblical writings in ancient writings uh, about this very time where there was an earthquake and a, and a darkness that covered the land. Um, if you want, look, look these ancient civilizations that write about this. The Babylonians, the Greeks, even the Polynesian islands write about, there's actually writings, ancient writings about this. Darkness, midday for three hours. Uh, let me give you just one, one of these examples. Um, um, this was um, a, a Greek uh, historian. Um, uh, his name was Phlegon, uh, a Greek historian who wrote um, an extensive chronology of history around AD 137. And in his writings, uh, let, me, let me quote, this is kind of fascinating. I'll quote his writing. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, you say, well, when is that? Right around AD 33, shockingly enough, that's when the 202nd Olympiad would be. They, they would do their dating based on that. But that would be right around AD 33. There was the greatest eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day. Um, exa example, noon. Um, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia and many things were overturned in Nicaea. This is a non-biblical writer of history talking about a big earthquake where rocks were broken up and uh, there was a darkness and he calls it um, um, uh, an eclipse. Now, uh, Phlegon provides powerful confirmation of the gospel account. He identifies the year and the exact time of day, which is a shock. 
the exact time of day. In addition, he writes of an earthquake accompanying the darkness, which specifically was recorded in Matthew's gospel, 2751. Um, however, like Thallus, he fallaciously attempts to interpret the darkness as a direct effect of a solar eclipse. So he calls it a solar eclipse, but um, if you know what the Bible actually is saying, it probably is not a solar eclipse. Well, then what was it? I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, maybe it was the hand of God, <laughs> you know? I mean, uh, or, or a piece of paper God used to, to I don't know, because his hand spans the universe, so that's probably too big to slide between the sun and the earth. But, uh, but God can do whatever he wants, and he can snuff out the sun for, you know, three hours and then make it turn it back on fire. Like, who knows what God did? I'm, I'm sort of being facetious. But um, if, if God can create the heavens and the earth, he can also make the sun go dark where people see the stars um, like this Greek historian writes about. Um, the reason I think it's important to see the global effect of the cross and that possibility is just the whole notion that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, not just those in Jerusalem and Judea, but uh, all the way in Portland, Oregon. Uh, do you ever wonder what Portland looked like uh, 2000 years ago? Um, I, I believe, uh, you know, uh, during this time, even Portland went dark. Uh, um, of course, it's dark today, so uh, who knows? But, but uh, that's a different kind of darkness. Well, anyway, that, I, I do believe that's the thing. The cross, even though Jesus died there in Jerusalem, it just reminds me of the, you know, he died for the sins of the whole world. Well, um, so there's that Greek word, if you wanna jot it down, the word gay uh, that's, that's used in this context, kind of interesting. Um, well, back to Matthew 27, uh, verse 46. It says in verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, why does he speak this? Well, he speaks this, by the way, and it's recorded in Aramaic. And you say, well, why did they record this? Because didn't Jesus generally speak Aramaic? Well, yes, that's kind of interesting. So why, why this? Um, this is an interesting thing because this would be misinterpreted um, by those standing around the cross. In fact, let's read on after verse 46. It says in verse 47, some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man called for Elias. Remember, that's the Greek New Testament term for Elijah. They're saying he's calling out to Elijah. And straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So they hear Jesus' words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And they're like, what, huh, what? And they, what, is he calling out to Elijah? Question, was he calling out to Elijah? No, he was calling out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in Aramaic? Now, um, uh, there's a couple things about this that are kind of important. Why, why did he cry this out? Well, I'll show you that here in a minute. Um, but, um, but before that, let's talk just briefly about this, um, this uh, vinegar that was talked about there in, in verse 48. Um, uh, most scholars believe this vinegar is, is a Greek word called oxos, uh, which is, um, or, or azos, uh, some people say, azos which is a mixture of sour wine and vinegar with water. And the Roman soldiers historically were accustomed to drinking this. Um, I'm not sure why they drink water out, watered down sour wine. Uh, who knows? But it was something they did drink. 
And why did they give him this to drink? Um, uh, they didn't understand what you know, Jesus was saying, but they're like, oh, he's really in trouble. He's crying out, so maybe we should give him something to drink. That, that seems to be the response to them thinking he's in desperation. So it, it makes you wonder, why, why did Jesus cry this out? And, um, and he didn't speak in Greek, he spoke in Aramaic. So they're showing their own ignorance when they hear him say, um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, this shows their ignorance, including the, the, you'd think the high priest would, oh, he's speaking of, well, does anybody know what he's speaking of? Psalm 22, Jesus is doing what a rabbi would do. This is very rabbinical. You say, what's, what's rabbinical? Well, the rabbis would uh, speak of the scriptures using the fra first phrase of a section to tell people what he was talking about. Um, you know, it'd be like, um, like if you're, in, it, pretend for a second we, we had the whole Old Testament without any chapters or verses. And I'd wanted to take you to a certain scripture. Um, and you know, if you're a Jew, you're supposed to know this holy Hebrew Old Testament scripture is pretty, pretty good. And so what, if, what, what scripture would I be referring to if I said, turn to the scripture where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23, see you're all Bible scholars here. Um, but that's the way the rabbis did it before chapters and verses were put in there. They'd say, they'd give the first phrase of a section of scripture to say, this is, what we're, this is what we're talking about right here, or this is what you should know about. And he'd only give the first phrase, which is interesting. What does that have to do with Psalm 22? Would you keep your finger here and turn with me to Psalm 22? Psalm 22 um, is one of the most messianic, if you could say such a thing, uh, scriptures, prophecies of the Old Testament, but it's also called the, the, uh, the Psalm of the Cross. The Psalm of the Cross. Um, keep in mind the psalmist, um, uh, David, who wrote this psalm, wrote this 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross. Um, and I've done whole studies on Psalm 22. If you're interested, uh, you can go back and do the whole chapter with me on Wednesday night, oh, several years ago when we were in Psalms. Um, but, um, but notice the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is referring to this passage as a rabbi who would have said, now, if you would say, read the rest of the chapter. Um, and you'll know what's happening. That's kind of the idea. That's the way the rabbis would teach. So in, in doing this, um, you know, Jesus calling out, um, you know, this, this line, what does Psalm 22 have to do with the cross? Well, I'm gonna just give you a kind of a hop through. I'm not gonna do the whole thing tonight because we've done this in other studies. But, um, but look, look at verse three, for example, verse three of Psalm 22. It says, but thou art holy, O thou, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered and trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Who's a reproach, despised of the people? That's Jesus. Is Jesus being called a worm here? Anybody? Yes, I'll tell you why. This is a great, this is great stuff. The word worm here is, is, is a Hebrew word for a specific kind of worm. The worm is a tola or a tolet as this is pronounced. Uh, like another, uh, you know, pronunciation is like tola with a TH, uh, which is like a T sound, tolat. Uh, it's a, it's a, a scientific name, cocos illicis, uh, worm, but it's also the same word they use for 
scarlet in the Bible. Why is it a worm or a scarlet and why is it the same? The answer, because they made their scarlet from this worm. Um, this is a really kind of amazing thing. They, they crushed these little worms. They'd go gather them up in the Middle East, crush them and make red dye out of the worms that had been crushed. And it was used for the fanciest of garments, the red dye that would come from these worms. Um, now, now, these are kind of interesting pictures and stuff, but, and they're in different phases of its. Here's, here's the, the story of these worms is kind of amazing. When, when Jesus, from the Psalm 22 perspective, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despise of the people. What's this tolith worm or cocos elicis? You can look this up. What it does is the mother worm climbs up onto a branch or a tree or a leaf and like a butterfly attaches itself, like a, like a butterfly and a, and a chrysalis attaches itself to the branch um, or the tree. But then what happens is the mother worm uh, gives birth to its little baby worms and the mother dies in the birthing process. Um, and while it's in its chrysalis form, that's when it forms its red, the red, bright redness that comes from this. Um, and this tree with the red stain on it is, is like an example where one of these kind of worms were, would be leaving a big red spot. But, but um, what's interesting, the little baby worms would survive by eating the body of the mother, the mother worm that was hanging on the tree. And by eating the body, they would survive and then they would crawl off and do their worm thing. But meanwhile, there would be a red spot left on the tree where the chrysalis was, where the mother worm gave her life for its little children worms. And then after being red for a season, eventually the, the, the redness would turn into this white flaky substance. And then in a certain time of the year, the redness would fall off the tree and fall like white as snow down to the ground. Um, it's this amazing uh, story of the, the, co the cocos elicis worm. Um, in a sense, this, this Psalm of the Cross is talking about Jesus is being pictured by, by the way, remember how, you know, Roman says all of creation really speaks of his glory. I wonder how much we're missing, like about all of creation, the stuff that we see in all of creation that points to Jesus and his awesome power and, and what he's done. But I believe this, this scarlet worm, though your sins be as tolet, they'll be as white as snow. Like that's an amazing thing that the worm is, is just that. I think it's an amazing picture. Well, Brett, I don't know if Psalm 22, just from a worm, you can make this the Psalm of the cross. Oh, well, let's keep looking. <laughs> Tell me, what's this about? Verse uh, seven, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot their lip and they shake their head saying, he trusted the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Does that sound familiar? Those are, the, those are the words that people yelled at him a thousand years later after this was written. Um, and look, look at verse 14. I'm skipping through a bunch of really good stuff. I hate to do that, but verse 14. I am poured out like water. What came out of his side when he was speared? Blood and water. Um, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Um, one of the repercussions of a crucifixion is bones would be popped out of socket, uh, especially in your shoulders and perhaps your hips. Um, uh, my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Do you remember the discussion of how Jesus died? We, we read the coroner's report a couple Sundays ago, and it, it very much fits this description that we just gave. Um, crucifixion causes your uh, bones to pop out of joint. Your and his heart literally burst 
and was mixed with his bowels. Same, same exact thing. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death for dogs. By the way, the word dogs is a word for Gentiles in the Old Testament. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Um, this is the Psalm of the Cross. Are, are, we, are we convinced yet? I mean, this is pretty, uh, pretty important. The Psalm of the Cross. Um, they've pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they uh, look and stare upon me. In other words, his bones weren't broken. Uh, he was able to tell. Remember when you were a kid and you crashed your bike and you're laying there, okay, right? Uh, you know, humorous. Yeah, I think we're good. You know, left metatarsals, like well, you kind of do an inventory of her bones to see if you're all, that's what's happening here is, is the idea. But on and on, we could, we could talk about this. Verse 24, for he hath, hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. I mean, all this stuff fits perfectly with the cross of Jesus. Psalm 22 is powerful. Again, if you haven't studied that, it's worth a study. You can go back and load that from our website if you want. Uh, but anyway, back to Matthew 27. Jesus is showing us all these things of the cross, people wagging their heads and his spear in his side and the, the whole thing is, that's all unfolding on that day was prophesied a thousand years. Now, by the way, what do the skeptics of the Bible do when they read? Like, like, um, <laughs> like if I tell my Jewish friends in Jerusalem who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah and I could show them their psalm from the Hebrew Bible and say, look at this, he was pierced. He was, people, you guys fulfilled all this back when Jesus died on the cross. And they'll look at it and scratch their heads and say, wow, what a coincidence. And I say, oy vey. <laughs> that's a God of wince. God knew what was happening. Uh, that's what the prophecy, you, you guys missed the true Messiah. But that should make sense because the Bible says largely blindness in, in part has happened to the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles happens, then all of Israel is gonna be saved. So they're gonna see it someday. I think they're gonna be shocked when they realize, wow, our Hebrew Bible pointed to Jesus over and over and over again. And they missed it, they totally missed it. Um, but uh, coincidence, no, I think this is just perfect fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So, uh, you know, back to Matthew 27, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now you say, okay, Brett, um, that's showing us Psalm 22, but did it also have literal meaning when he cried it out? I believe yes. The, the meaning is this, what happens when we sin? We talked about this on Sunday, Isaiah 59, one and two, what happens? Separation from God. Jesus had never known separation from the Father as a one living as a man on the earth. Brad, he is God, yes. The mystery of the Trinity, I get all that. But suddenly all the sins of the world were put on Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross and now, you might say, if you would, for the first time, he's, he's experiencing that separation that he had never felt because he'd never sinned. He who, he who knew no sin became sin. What a radical thing Jesus must have felt at that moment of all that sin put on him. And that's why this literal, you know, why hast thou forsaken me? God had to sort of do that uh, because of the sin that was put upon his, on his, on his back. Um, all that to say, again, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. All of us need Jesus to be saved. And this, this just shows the radical work that Jesus did for us when he cries this out. Lama, uh, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. Well, back to Matthew 27. Um, we pick it up there in verse 50. 
It says, and Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Interesting choice of words. We, we say different things when people die. They died. Um, but there's, there's something about this that's interesting where Jesus is in control. That the wording of this says he, he did it. He yielded up the ghost. Um, and you do wonder about that on, the, on a person's deathbed. Can they, you know, you, you talk to people how they make it to see their granddaughter or they make it and then, and then they die. Or have you heard about when like somebody's spouse dies and then shortly thereafter they die? You kind of think, wow, what's up with that? Don't know the answers. But in this case, Jesus, it seems like he willingly yielded up the ghost. It wasn't just, uh, you know, biologically, uh, simply. It was, it was actually him saying, it's it. Jesus chose everything about his death, the time, the place, the method, the means, all that was chosen by Jesus. And he did that willingly. Um, everybody else thought they were in control, the Romans, the Sanhedrin, uh, the high priest, they thought they were in control, but Jesus was the one who willingly did all this stuff. I, I wanted to remind you of that. And that's why it's a cool use of term. He yielded up the ghost. Even his very moment of death was by his choosing. Verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks did rent. Uh, we talked about this on Sunday, uh, the, the veil of the temple being ripped. Uh, one scripture that I should have shared with you that I, I forgot to on Sunday, I wanted to give you Wednesday nighters, is Romans chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Um, I love that, by whom we have access by faith into his grace wherein we stand. That's all because of what Jesus did, the, the, the tearing of the veil of the temple. Again, if you missed that on Sunday, uh, you can catch up with that one as well. Matthew uh, 27, verse 52. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, when the centurion and they that were with them uh, watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared and uh, greatly uh, saying, truly, this was the son of God. We didn't really touch much on this uh, thriller moment where the graves open up. Uh, what happened here? Not 100% sure, but we can put the pieces together. And, and here's what's strange. It seems that the graves opened up, but did the people come out of those graves immediately? Well, the answer is probably not. Did you see what it says there in our text, verse 53? Uh, and they came out of the, uh, it says, those which slept arose and came uh, out of the graves after his resurrection. So when did the graves open? It seems like when he died, the graves opened. But it was after he rose from the grave that they all start, came out of their sort of um, sarcophaguses or uh, whatever you know, grave clothes they had. You mean, Brett, there was a three days lapse from the earthquake where the graves opened and then when people came out? Yep, it does seem that way. But does that make sense if you kind of know the rest of the story? Well, it kind of does. Um, because of something that happened with Jesus during his death and burial, for those three days, um, a lot of Christians don't really know the, the Bible very well and some of this intermediary stuff that happened uh, 
Um, what, why, what, what happened here? And, and let's talk about something here uh, like soul sleep. Some Christians believe in a thing called soul sleep. That when you die, you get buried in the grave and your soul goes to sleep until the resurrection. Um, I disagree with that completely and I'll tell you why. Um, there's so many reasons why that doesn't work uh, uh, in the Bible. Well, the Bible says, you know, he slept with his fathers. Well, that was an idiom of the Jews. To, it was just an idiom. It's the same kind of thing of saying the sun rises in the you know, east and sets in the west. Does the sun really rise in the east? No, the earth goes around in a circle and it looks like the sun is rising, but it's not really. It's just an idiom. Um, so uh, don't, don't, we don't wanna get too caught up in the, the idioms of the, of the day. He slept with his fathers. Um, but here's the thing. Um, for example, when Abraham died, uh, where did Abraham go? Heaven? It's sort of right. Paradise, a place called Abraham's bosom has his name on it, by the way. Um, what's Abraham's bosom? Does anybody remember? How many place, uh, sections does Abraham's bosom have? Two, one is called paradise. The other is called Hades, right. Uh, okay, so you're saying, Brad, are you, the reason I wanted you to do that is people think I make this stuff up, uh, but I'm not. In fact, I'm gonna give you kind of a, a quick, um, a quick one rundown on, on this whole thing. First of all, what does the Bible say? The Bible says this about soul sleep. I think this is where we should give it up right away. 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The idea is when you're absent from the body, you will be present with the Lord. That's an important thing. Remember the thief on the cross. He's a great example of that. Did, did Jesus say, not today will you be with me in paradise, but on the resurrection you'll be with me in paradise? No, he said today. Uh, so the, the thief on the cross didn't go into soul sleep. In fact, you can jot Luke 23, verses 42 through 43. He said unto Jesus, uh, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee that today um, shalt thou be with me in paradise. And that's, that's the operative word there, today. Uh, there was no soul sleep involved. By the way, I love the thief on the cross salvation. It answers some really big questions. Um, you know, some people say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Baptism is something you do to be obedient as a Christian. Baptism is something you do if you wanna walk in the fullness of the blessing of God, whatever God wants for your life. Baptism is wonderful, important, and even something you should do. But if you are not baptized, can you, some people say, well, you won't go to heaven unless you're baptized. No, the thief on the cross is a great example of someone, Jesus didn't say, Today, we need to get off these crosses right now and go do some baptism. Then we'll get back up on the cross, die, and then you'll be with me. No, that's not what happened. Um, uh, I love how, and by the way, that fits the rest of the Bible, right? Because how are you saved? By grace through and not of your, baptism is a work. It's a good work, don't get me wrong. It's an obedient work, but you can't add anything to the cross of what Jesus did to be saved. That's important. So the thief on the cross actually helps me with all kinds of doctrinal questions, which are pretty important, I think. But uh, when it comes to soul sleep, he didn't go to soul sleep. He went to paradise with Jesus. Now, paradise is part of Abraham's bosom. Now, this is, this is where it gets really interesting. Um, now, um, keep in mind, um, uh, you know, the idea of, of you know, three days, um, you might say, well, maybe it's like, 
time out of time, you know, and, and people do some stuff with the twisting of time. God exists outside of time. And I get that, I understand that. But I, I believe that the Bible's pretty literal about everything that happened with Jesus um, after he died on the cross. What was Jesus doing for those three days? Um, because if you're, if you're dead, if your body is dead, um, and you're not, your soul is not there, where was Jesus during those three days? Well, the Bible tells us that, Ephesians 4, seven through 10. You can jot these scriptures down. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, that's Jesus' is an ascension, he led captivity captive. That's a funny way of saying people that were in captivity free. And gave gifts unto men. Now, here's a parenthetical statement, verses nine and 10. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. What's this all about? When Jesus died on the cross, he first descended to the lower parts of the earth. Another idiom of Abraham's bosom or uh, paradise and Hades, the lower parts of the earth. Um, is it literally in the center of the earth? or the? I don't know, I've never been there. Um, but I don't know, like the Bible doesn't really give us detail on that other than this either is an idiom of that or whatever, we don't know. But um, we do know that um, that's an idiom for Hades and, and, um, and, uh, and we know what's going on there. There's two sides. Where do we learn about the lower parts of the earth and this Hades and paradise thing? Well, one example is Luke 16, verses 22 through 23. Remember the, the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man that Jesus gave? Uh, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, uh, literal word, Hades, uh, he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And if you remember the, the guy, you know, this rich man that was in Hades was suffering. Oh, if I could just have a drop of water on my tongue, please. And there was a gulf between them where Abraham and the, the Lazarus couldn't reach that guy. And he said, well, if you can't give me water, at least go and tell my family. And Jesus, remember, what did Jesus say? He said, you know, your family, the Jews, you guys have known this stuff for years. You think us just going to tell them now is gonna change anything? Um, there was so much lack of faith and that's why this guy ends up in, in the Hades part. Well, because he didn't believe. So, um, so Abraham's bosom, there's, there's some key passages that I've already given you a few. Luke 16, what Hades looked like before Jesus died. And what did Jesus do? He first descended into that place and in the paradise side, he led captivity captive, those that were in paradise, Abraham and all the Old Testament believers, and he led them after those three days, he led them free to what we would traditionally now call heaven. So if you would, paradise as we know it in the Bible has been sort of retired. Hades is still in operation right now, um, but it's not the final hell that we all think of. Hades is just, just like paradise, it's a temporary place. What's the name, the Greek word for their final place called hell, anybody? Gehenna, where death and hell, which is, the uh, book of Revelation says, death and hell will be thrown in Gehenna. Death and hell is Hades and Sheol in the Greek. Okay, are you guys with me on this? So it, it's, it gets a little confusing, but Jesus, now, now you say, Brett, what was Jesus doing there for three days? Why didn't he just go down 
and just lead captivity captive, take Abraham and the crew up to heaven. And why did he, why did he spend there three days? Does anybody know what was, what was Jesus doing? He was preaching, preaching to who? Well, jot down 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Uh, this gets kind of heady when you dive into this. For Christ also has once suffered for sin, um, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. By the way, pause for a second. Um, if you listen to Kenneth Copeland, I always get Hagen and Copeland mixed up. They're both uh, wacko, but Copeland's really wacko, okay? Just, just hope none of you guys follow Kenneth Copeland. Um, I think he's demonic, honestly. Um, his doctrine is horrifying. But he, he loves to talk about how Jesus went and burned in hell, suffered like a, what did he call him? Like a worm in hell or something. That's just not really knowing what happened. Did Jesus suffer in hell? No, he went to the paradise side and he did this. When did he suffer for sins? Once on the cross. Um, it says here, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the spirit, which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when, the once long, uh, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is to, uh, eight souls were saved by water. Huh, what? Do you guys, now, now I know we're on a huge rabbit trail here, but this, this is important, this is important. Who were the spirits or the demons? I'm giving you some freebies here. Who were the demons that were particularly disobedient before the flood of Noah? Anybody remember? Remember the stuff we talked about a few weeks ago from Genesis five and six, where the spirits of God or the sons of God came and had you know, sexual immorality with the daughters of men? And you're like, what's that all about? And remember, what, it, what was the fruit of those, uh, yeah, the giants, the Nephilim. And there's a whole thing there that's really kind of corrupted. Well, there were demons that acted in particularly bad disobedience, if you would. Um, and so the, the, the Bible tells us he locked those demonic figures up and, uh, and they're, they're in a place where Jesus preached to them. Was he preaching for their salvation? No, he was actually preaching about their destruction. Um, so so for, it says, he, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing and the eight people were saved. So not preaching salvation, but preaching to condemnation. Um, so first, um, Christ, before he ascended, he first descended preached to those that were locked in a specific place um, where, by the way, those demons, according to the book of Revelation, are gonna be released again during the tribulation period. Does that sound like a fun time? Uh, if you know those demons, you're like, yeah, that's not a good thing. Um, but, uh, but when Jesus, it seems to me, when he rose from the grave, um, it, there was kind of this byproduct of some people, not, not all, but some. Did you notice that? Look at verse 52. And the graves were opened and many bodies, not all bodies, but many bodies arose of the saints which slept and arose. Um, if all the bodies arose, uh, that would be quite a thing. I'm not sure that's what happened, but I don't know for sure. Not all. Uh, the, the, you say, Brad, I'm more confused before I came to Wednesday night Bible study than... <laughs> Part of this is just putting pieces of all the Bible stories together and you start to get a picture of what happened here. That these people that sort of showed up and were there on earth. Were they there for long? We don't know. Did they die a few days later or did they just ascend into heaven or what happened? Don't know. Uh, but we do know that 
Christ is the author of life and death. And even as Jesus rose from the grave, they rose from the grave. And guess what? You and I get to raise up and go to heaven as well. So that's the main point you gotta walk away with is Jesus has power over life and death. And he led all those captive people in paradise. Paradise was a good place, but it wasn't heaven. Uh, He led all those Old Testament believers up into what we would now think of as, as heaven. And good news, when you die, you say, well, what does this matter? What does this mean for me? Am I gonna be in a place called paradise and then have to make a leap and hear some sermons to some demons? No, you and I, when, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. As soon as you die, you go straight to heaven. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ. Um, does that make sense? Okay, good. Well, where were we? Um, verse 54. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching uh, Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. I always try to think, what, what do you do if you're the person who just crucified Jesus, spat on him, made fun of him, and then you realize you just killed God? That's what these guys are coming to the realization. Um, the answer, we've all done that. When we sin, when we sin against Jesus Christ, when we sin against the Lord, any of us, we've sinned against Jesus who died on the cross and our sins were put upon him. But the good news is that, that question is what everybody has to ask. What do you do about Jesus Christ? And this is kind of a fun part about, did you know that church history, not the Bible, but church history tells us that this centurion would later believe and become part of the early church. Um, this, this is an example of the redemptive work of God. He could save even the guys that literally nailed Jesus on the cross. Um, I believe even those guys could be saved. All manner of sin is forgivable except for one, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that's the ultimate rejecting of Jesus. When you just say, I will not believe, I will not follow. But I believe some of these guys, because of what history tells us about church history, that these guys were saved. What a cool thing. God's grace is amazing. Verse 55. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Um, Notice the men are not there. Where are the men? Anybody? They're hiding. (laughs) And uh, what are the women doing? They're ministering to him. Um, the word minister, you might want to write that down the, uh, the, or at least highlight that word ministering because it's this word, whoops, it's this word uh, deacon, deaconess in the feminine. Um, are there deaconesses in the Bible? And the answer is to that, anybody? Yes, there's deaconesses. And um, there does seem to be the seven deacons that they chose to lead the church in Acts chapter six. But you also have these women that were called deaconesses in like the last chapter of Romans. Uh, there's a, a woman who's given that delineation, the feminine form. But the word uh, uh, diakoneo means uh, to be a servant, attendant, to wait upon someone. And um, one of the things when people say, well, Brett, does Athe Greek have deacon, deaconesses? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. We have amazing women who do all kinds of work here around the church, ministering to people, uh, whether it's through counseling 
or teaching, women teaching women. And, and uh, we talked about some of this stuff uh, recently, but uh, man, it's amazing how the men were hiding away and it was the women that were there doing the work of ministering even unto Jesus, which is uh, really something. Um, so uh, at Athey Creek, you, you say, well, Brett, uh, can women be leaders in the church? Uh, I wanna, uh, we've talked about this in, in times past, even recently, um, but uh, I'm really excited because Amy McReynolds is gonna do her next Devoted talking about complementarian view versus egalitarian view. And that's gonna be better hearing it from her than me. So I'm gonna let, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go hide. Um, <laughs> just kidding. No, you, you guys that know me, I, we just talked about this, uh, the egalitarian view versus complementary view. And uh, we just believe men and women are different. The Bible tells us that. And God has given out assignments. And both men and women get to do fun stuff and not so fun stuff, good things and bad things. Um, I think that oftentimes women, when they say, we can do everything men can do, men are like, okay, if you want, uh, you know, like you can do that if you want. And that's the way a lot of people respond. It's just that the Bible doesn't really allow for that. The Bible says women are gonna do stuff like, well, things that men can't do. Um, you know, I've noticed that women say, well, we wanna have a career just like a man. Well, if you wanna have the second curse, go ahead. That's what the second curse was. Men have to go out and work by the sweat of their brow. If you wanna join the party, you can do that. Uh, and, and you'll work for 40 years and get a gold watch at retirement party and that's all you get. Or you could do the thing that men can't do and have babies, which is something that we men kinda of go, wow, I mean, I'm glad we don't have the childbirth thing, but, but having babies? Like that might just be the greatest thing in the whole world. Our, our secular world hates it. They're at war with the idea of having babies, but having children, and then when you get old, having grandchildren, that is a heritage that the Lord gives. Like, like I, I just have to say, have we kind of lost our brains? Men can do stuff, women can do stuff. God handed out the, the duties, and you can either go with the flow and say that this is what God ordained, or you can rebel against it. Like a lot of people, secularists and church people alike are very much opposing the, the word on this. But that's not to say that women can't serve in the church. If you've noticed at Athey Creek, the only role really a woman doesn't serve here at Athey is that of an elder. Um, same word, same thing, pastor, pastor, elder. Because the Bible says that, the Lord says, I want the men to be the elders and pastors. Um, again, a little overrated. Oh, I want to be an elder. I've been an elder since I was 19. It's like kind of cool, but it's sort of not. Um, if I had to tra trade, uh, I have to say some, some women have some really cool things that they can do in the church that I would never be able to do. Um, and, and I think we've exchanged these and we, we've created this false dilemma that one's worse than or less than. No, um, uh, we believe the Lord uh, loves us all equally um, but he gave us different distinctions and different jobs to do and both are honored and blessed. And uh, we, we see that it's very clear in the Bible. You have to do some really strange manipulation of scripture to reject that view. Um, so anyway, uh, that's coming soon uh, at the Women's Devoted. Uh, I recommend that one, it's gonna be great. Anyway, let's see, where were we? Uh, we need to finish. <laughs> um, verse 57 uh, it says, and when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, um, who also himself was Jesus's disciple. 
Now, this is interesting, by the way, there in verse 57. Uh, he was a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12, but remember, there was the 70, there was the 100. We don't know which group, but he's also called the secret disciple. And in John's gospel, John chapter 19, verse 38, uh, Joseph of Arimathea is the disciple of Jesus, but secret, secretly for fear of the Jews. You say, well, what a wimp. Probably not. He was probably very brave. And the reason why is most Bible scholars believe Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin. You say, Brett, you mean he was one of the guys that crucified Jesus? He was part of that crew, obviously not partaking in that, but he was very likely part of the Sanhedrin. He was wealthy, respected. Um, and, uh, and John says he was secret because of fear of the Jews. And also look what he does in verse 58. Um, when the evening was come, you know, Joseph showed up, verse 58, he then went to Pilate. I mean, who can just go talk to Pontius Pilate? So Joseph of Arimathea must have been someone of substance and authority. He went to Pontius Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb which he had hewn out in a rock or in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Um, so uh, when it says he wrapped him in linen, Mark chapter 15, verse 46 tells us that he went and bought with his own money, very fine linen, very expensive linen to wrap Jesus's body took him down, wrapped him, put him in the tomb. And uh, there's another scripture, John 19, 39, tells us that Nicodemus helped him, which is kind of interesting. Another religious leader of that time and place. So kind of cool, these, these religious guys who were kind of off in the quiet background suddenly come out and they, they, they take the body of Jesus. Uh, John 19, 39, there came Nicodemus, which first came to Jesus by night and brought the mixture of myrrh and aloes with a hundred pounds of weight. So lots of expensive stuff these guys brought. Well, now verses 60 and 61, uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes through um, and, he, and he does all this stuff that's pretty amazing. He, he buries the, the body of Christ. Um, I love how the Lord uses people differently. Joseph of Arimathea gets used pretty powerfully to do something the other disciples couldn't do. Um, are you a person who doesn't sit up in front and preach the gospel? Maybe you're the person who's a little more logistical or maybe you have the financial means to help make things happen. Or like, I love the way the church is, is very diverse in that way. And Joseph of Arimathea, we don't hear much about him other than he just makes something happen when it needed to happen. We have Athey Creekers that are like that. People that have jobs, they make money. They, they usually are uh, good at earning money. So they're good at helping with some of the big things that go on here at Athey Creek. And I'm so thankful for that and for the different people that kind of move in that way. Well, verse 62, finishing up. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came, to get, came together unto Pilate saying, sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. <laughs> Interesting. Um, it's like the, the skeptics were believers and the believers were skeptics. You know, the, they said he's gonna rise again. The disciples forgot all about that. The disciples, the ones who should be saying, he's gonna rise again in three days. They were saying, we're toast. 
But the skeptics were saying, he said he was gonna rise again. Oh, we're kind of worried about that. So verse, verse 64, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So that last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, you have a watch. Go your way, make it sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. What's a watch? 50 Roman soldiers. Basically Pontius Pilate says, okay, you want this? I give you 50 soldiers um, and, and a Roman seal over the tomb, which was kind of a big deal. Um, and this is, this is interesting. You know, poor Pontius Pilate just keeps getting bugged by this, bugged by this. And this is the last we see where he's like, yeah, whatever, do what you want. Here's 50 soldiers, good luck with that. Um, I told you last week, and we, we ran out of time, um, but what happened to Pontius Pilate? We don't know for sure, but there's two big stories that are out there. Josephus, in his book of Antiquities, chapter 18, um, he, uh, he writes about um, Pilate, how one year later, he was so unsuccessful in Judah or Judea that they sent him to what is today Germany, uh, where he went and hung himself one year later. That's the Josephus account. Now, you gotta give Josephus credit. He was right about a lot of stuff in history. He was a first century historian. But there's um, a whole nother sets of groups. Augustine, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church, some of these guys, they say that Pilate and his wife, Pontius Pilate and his wife became Christians. In fact, uh, according to the Biblical Archaeological Society, early Christians saw Pilate in a very different way. Augustine hailed Pilate as a convert to Christianity. Eventually certain churches, including Greek Orthodox, Coptic faiths, named Pilate and his wife as saints. The ancient historian Eusebius, who's also, by the way, a very formidable uh, early writer of history, Eusebius supports his claim by saying Pilate converted after seeing the many wonders that occurred after Jesus's death, even reporting it to Tiberius. And here's what Eusebius wrote, I'll just read it to you. And when the wonderful resurrection and ascension of our savior were already reported abroad in accordance with an ancient custom which prevailed among the rulers of the provinces of reporting to the emperor, the novel occurrences which took place in them in order that nothing might escape him, Pontius Pilate informed Tiberius of the reports which were reported abroad through all Palestine concerning the resurrection of our savior Jesus from the dead. He gave an account also of other wonders which he had learned of him and how after his death, having risen from the dead, he was now believed by many to be a God. This was written um, by Eusebius, uh, an, you know, an ancient historian. Like this is, this is really pretty radical to think that the, this kind of writing is out there outside of the Bible. So which one is it? Did he hang himself or did he become a Christian? I don't know. But the question is uh, really the same for all of humanity. What are you gonna do about Jesus? Do you accept him or reject him? That's the same question we end this whole study with. Um, you know, in verse 66, you know, they, they went and made the sepulchers sealing the stone, setting the watch, which sets us up now nicely for the next two Sundays to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, that's gonna be good stuff, amen? Amen, amen. <laughs> well, Lord, this story is so, um, so powerful and impacting and life-changing for all of us, Lord. We, uh, we marvel at the story of the, the cross, 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I have determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Lord, we, we marvel at such a perfect plan of salvation. And I pray that it would be seated in our hearts, Lord, and that we'd be thankful for that work of the cross, that saving work, Lord, of redemption for us. So as we go our way, Lord, fill us up. Be, uh, Lord, just right in front of us the rest of this week. I pray that we'd serve you and walk with you and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.